0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right. Good morning, church. Great to see you guys today. Let's take out our Bibles and turn to uh, Exodus chapter 17, Exodus chapter Uh, 17 as we continue our study through uh, the book of Exodus. Uh, It was important to me to get through this next section that we're going to look at because it does mark the end of the first half of Exodus. Then we'll take a little Christmas break. Next Sunday, I'll give a Christmas message. The Sunday after that will be uh, Christmas Eve, which I'm really excited about and would encourage you to invite someone to one of those services. And then uh, the following Sunday will be December 31st, New Year's Eve. And uh, I've asked Pastor Josh Shively, that will be his last day as a staff pastor here at this church before he takes his family onto the mission field in Thailand. So I'm going to get every last nickel out of him. So he's going to be preaching on that Sunday, December 31st. Can't wait to hear what uh, the Lord puts uh, on his heart. And then we'll pick up Exodus again in Exodus 19 uh, on the first Sunday of January. I believe that's January 7th. So looking forward to to that. I just love this season. I want to say Merry Christmas to all of you today. I've I, I, I learned early in my marriage uh, that it would be beneficial for me to be a Christmas guy. And uh, so I just embraced it wholeheartedly and have loved uh, the Christmas season. And then once I had three daughters and, you know, they're all so close in age and sentimental and all of that, I discovered that as a dad, I had an opportunity to uh, set a tone every single year uh, for them that made this season uh, a blessed season. And so I've really tried to do that and encourage the dads in the house. If you can, muster it up. Don't be a Grinch this year. Be a blessing to uh, your family. But uh, I just love this time of the year. I know it can be very hard for some people because of memories and disappointments and things like that. But the the part of the season where we get to look afresh at the incarnation and what Christ has given to us. That alone by itself is so refreshing for us to set our minds upon. Okay, today we've got a long passage uh, of scripture. We're going to read two episodes, uh, Exodus 17, 8, all the way through chapter 18. And I do want to actually read the whole thing at the beginning. So if you guys would follow along either in your Bibles or on the screen, I'll remind you a couple of weeks ago when we were in Exodus, the place where we left off, the people of Israel, they have been set free. They've already gone through the waters of the Red Sea. They're, they've been in the wilderness now for a couple of months. God's been providing for them the manna, miraculous water. And now it says in verse 8, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 14, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now verse 1 of chapter 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses, verse 8, told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know. That the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father in law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat the bread, eat bread with Moses' father in law before God. The next day, verse thirteen, Moses sat to judge the people. And Moses stood, and, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, verse 23, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went away to his own country. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you today with these episodes, the Amalekites and Jethro meeting with Moses and attacking Israel. We pray, Lord, that you would minister to us from this passage, the very things that you are trying to teach Israel. We pray, Lord, today, now thousands of years later, that you would teach them to us. So, Lord, thank you for this passage. It's already just ministered to me, just reading it, but I pray, Lord, that it would minister to us as we consider it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, thank you for reading that long passage uh, with me. Uh, these two episodes, <clears throat> of the battle with the Amalekites and uh, the meeting with Jethro, it uh, seems that these two episodes are meant to go together in the book of Exodus. Why do I say that? Well, they're very clearly contrasted by a few different elements, and there are some similarities. Uh, in the first episode, descendants of Amalek, come to fight with Israel. Uh, And in the second episode, a Midianite priest comes to bless Israel. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. One group came to war against Israel, and another uh, person came to bless or promote peace among Israel. Uh, One was distraught at Israel's presence outside of Egypt. The Amalekites did not like that at all. But Another rejoiced that God had given the people of Israel victory over Egypt. In the first episode, Moses sits on a stone while the people war in the battle below. And in the second episode, Moses sits on the stone of judgment to settle personal wars that Israelites have with each other. And in both episodes, men, good men, godly men, able men are selected. Joshua was to choose warriors and Moses was to choose judges to help with the task at hand. But the biggest commonality in these two episodes is that these are both stories about Moses getting tired. I mean, in the first episode, he's holding up the rod of God in his hand, and his hands grow tired, and so Aaron and Hur come and hold his hands up. And in the second story, Jethro observes that Moses is going to get tired if he continues this process of judging the people all day long, settling every dispute and every disagreement that they have among themselves. Now, this is a radical development in the book of Exodus. You and I, we might be sitting here today saying to ourselves, well, of course Moses got tired. Uh, The Bible tells us that he was 80 years old. I mean, he needed a nap at like 10 a.m. You know, that, that, that might be our mentality about Moses. But let me ask you this question. Has the book of Exodus presented Moses like that at any point? No, what you see in Exodus is a man who is growing in strength. He was weaker at age 40 than he was at age 80. He's a strong individual. He's a competent leader. He has confronted, of course, with the power of God and the rod of God in his hand, the most powerful man in the world, the most powerful nation in the world, and the most powerful military in the world. He is not presented as a man who is weak in any way. So it's supposed to capture our attention when we see two stories back to back where this guy is growing tired. What is happening? What is God trying to communicate to us? I think that the placement of these stories in the Bible, in in Exodus, is important and strategic. There's a transition that is happening right here in this moment. I already mentioned to you that after this they're going to receive the law of God. This is going to be a new development for the people of Israel, but I'll remind you that the book of Exodus what it's describing is a transformational experience for the Hebrew people. I asked you at the beginning of this study, do you want to experience the transformational work Of God in your life. And the reason I asked you that question based on the book of Exodus is because Exodus starts with a chaotic mass of Hebrews who are enslaved to a foreign power, and it ends with an organized group of people living under the law of God. There's a transformation that occurs across the timeline of the book of Exodus. And this movement is a major development in preparing them for the transformation that God ultimately wanted to work in their lives. God was not content to merely bring them out of Egypt, a chaotic group now free from Egypt's clutches. No, he wanted to train them, disciple them, mentor them, shape them for something better in the future. So I think what God was doing here with the Amalekites was he was preparing them for the reality, because this was their very first battle that they had to fight with their own hands. He was preparing them for a very long war. They, they were going to have to fight for their existence for many, many years. He was preparing them for that with this first battle. I think that God was also preparing them how to deal with the nations, the Amalekites were hostile, but then right after that, this Midianite high priest comes onto the scene and he's incredibly favorable to them. And I think this was meant to train the people of Israel for their mission to the nation. Sometimes it's going to go good, sometimes it's going to go bad, but we are meant to be a light to the nations of this world. The people of Israel should have learned from this passage and we should learn from it as well. The big thing that God seems to be doing in this passage is preparing his people for the law, preparing his people for the Torah, preparing his people for the 10 commandments and all the commandments that would extend from those 10 commandments. He was preparing them to be a people who lived under the law. And that's why Jethro came with this counsel. You guys need to get organized so that you have a way to distribute the law of God among the people. And I think that these are all lessons we need to learn today. All things that God is trying to prepare and produce and do inside of us today. God wants us to know firstly, hey, when you get saved, when I bring you out of Egypt, when I reach into your life and rescue you from the pit of slavery that you were in, I do the work. But then after I pull you out from that slavery, you are to join me in the work. Just as the people of Israel went out to war against the Amalekites but did not have to lift a finger against the Egyptians, so you, he's saying to us, need to be involved in your sanctification process and you need to prepare for that very long war because it's not always easy, is it? There are things in our nature and character that take a lot of time and energy and focus and discipline and the power of God to see it release from. The Lord also wants to prepare us for our interaction with the world in which we live. Sometimes as we tell people what Jesus has done for us, just like Moses told Jethro what God had done for them, sometimes it goes great, sometimes it goes poorly, but our job is to communicate what God has done because we are meant to be a light to the world. And after being delivered from the clutches of our old task masters, we are also meant to allow God's statutes to govern our lives. We should be asking the question, what does God want for me? What does God desire for me? Okay, these are all things that God was preparing his people for in this passage. Now, before we look at those three things, I mean, I basically just gave you the sermon right there. So if you don't want to just pack it up and leave, you could act like you're going to the bathroom. You kind of got the whole thing. But before I look at those three things more in depth, I just want to take a moment to celebrate that God is a preparing God. You know, when Jesus came onto the scene, how did he introduce God to his disciples? He introduced him as father. Pray like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And fathers, good fathers, they prepare their children. They prepare their children for for what's coming. They prepare their children. They train their children. They help them get ready for life after they leave the home. And sometimes that preparation is difficult. I can remember teaching all three of my daughters how to ride a bike. You know, it was, a, it was an emotional experience. You know, there was, there was lots of crying. There was lots of arguing. There were, there were a few wins in there, a few exciting moments, like, you're doing it, you're doing it, but there was lots of, you know, real angst, and that was just from me on my side of things. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a challenge to prepare. It's a challenge to train, but praise God that that's who he is. He, as, his fa- as our father He loves to train and prepare us for for the days that are coming. And he he wants to do that in our lives in all all three of these things. So let's think about them sequentially. First, uh, number one, uh, God prepared these people for a long war uh, when the descendants of Amalek came and fought with Israel there at Rephidim. Uh, This battle, like I said, would not be like the one-sided affair at the Red Sea, the one where Israel only had to watch God go to war against the Egyptians. They just had to take the path that God had provided here. They were called to engage in the conflict. Take warriors, take men, send them down into the valley to fight. And whenever Moses held the staff of God high in the air of the people below, they got victory, and whenever his hands grew heavy and he let down the staff Amalek, It says in verse 11 of chapter 17, prevailed. Now, I don't think that this can be uh, um, explained in some naturalistic way. You know, like, well, you know, probably what was happening was the men of Israel are down there fighting a war. And just at the moment where their spirits are sagging and they need encouragement, they look up to the mountain. And there's Moses with his hands in the air. And they get pumped up and they can hear the ACDC playing in the background and they go out into war and they begin to be victorious. I don't think that's what's happening. I don't think the opposite is happening. They, they're, they're doing well. They look up. Moses is distracted. His hands are heavy and they become discouraged. Now, this is a supernatural event. In fact, it's interesting. There's hardly anything mentioned about the battle. The focus is The hill. The focus of the text is what's happening with Moses. Were his hands up or his hands down? Was the staff held high or was it not? What would Aaron and Hur do when his hands began to sag? The lesson for them and for us is very clear. The same power of God that was unleashed when Moses lifted up his staff at the Red Sea is the same power of God that was available to these Israelite warriors when they went out into battle. And clearly, the power was not in Moses. His hands were growing weak. In fact, it says that he needed support. He needed a rock to sit on. He needed Aaron and her to hold up his hands to his right and his left, which are probably hardcore symbolism of what is happening in the development of the nation of Israel. Aaron would end up being the first priest in Israel. Her came from the tribe of Judah, which was the tribe of the kings in Israel eventually. And whenever Israel was doing really good in the Old Testament, you had prophets who were supported by a godly priesthood and godly kings. So it's like God is trying to even communicate ahead of time. This is what makes for a really healthy community, not just a strong prophet, but also these godly kings and people in authority and and godly priests that are doing their job well. But Moses needed that support. To Moses, the lesson was clear. While we battle and struggle with our actual hands, we must extend our metaphorical hands to God's throne to grab hold of God's power. So Israel, down in the battle in the valley, they learned that God's power was with them in their struggle with Amalek and would be with them in their future struggles with enemy opposers. Now, in a moment, I'm going to talk about God's ongoing opposition with the and to the Amalekites, uh, along with what we can compare the Amalekites to today. And spoiler alert, it's not, I have a bad landlord or someone cut me off in traffic. And so uh, God, please destroy them. That's not uh, the parallel for our modern time. But But for now, I just want us to think about the big lesson. What would they have learned? What should we learn? Well, you might remember a couple of weeks ago when they were at the waters of Massa and Meribah, where they complained and they tested God. What was their big question? They said, is the Lord among us or not? After all those plagues, after the parting of the waters at the Red Sea, is God with us or not, is what they asked. And the answer to the question is a resounding yes, God is with you. God is strong on your behalf. And I think we need to embrace that message as well. We need to understand that we are in as Christians for a long war that we must everlastingly look to him for his power and ability for As I said earlier, this is the first time Israel's been asked to fight for itself. But this does not mean that God is like a coach on the sidelines who's done his preparing, but now he has to trust that his athletes are going to get the job done on the court or on the field. No, it's God's power itself that enables his warriors down below. You know, Jesus said that he is the vine and we are the branches. You know, when when we remain in constant life-receiving relationship with Jesus, in other words, good things come out of our lives, like fruit that grows on a vine that's connected. The source of life and strength isn't in the branch, but still the branch needs to abide. Its responsibility is to look to its source of energy, and we have to do the same thing. We have to look to God for his strength. And here in this episode, God signaled that though the Red Sea victory did not require them to fight from here on in the long war ahead, they would be required to fight. Good men were sent down into the valley with Joshua, and I think we also have to be ready to engage in the long war to which we as Christians are called. After we're saved by Jesus He spurs us on into a life of personal transformation to become more like the Jesus who saved us. But that is a war and we have to be willing to engage it, trusting that his power will be with us in that process. Maybe another picture from agriculture can help make this uh, make sense to us. You know, a flower, it grows when it opens up its petals and turns to the sun. It's the sun that is producing the energy. It's the sun that's producing the light and the warmth that's essential to growth. The power is in the sun, but the flower must position itself to receive it. What about you? Are you positioning yourself? Are you saying, God, I'm in the fight. I'm in the struggle for sanctification, but I'm looking to you for your help. I'm looking to you for your strength. I'm looking to you for your guidance. I need your power in this. Paul said it this way in Philippians 2. He said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, if you've believed in Christ, like the Israelites after the Passover and the Red Sea, you have your salvation. It's yours. Through Christ's blood and the baptismal waters, it's your own. But now you get to work it out. Joining God's power in the process. You know, before a great house is built, what has to happen? The land has to be acquired, the plans must be drawn, the foundation must be set. But once it is, the building can begin in earnest. And that's what it's like in the Christian life. The building can begin in earnest. What kind of life are you building? With the power of God. It's a long war that we are invited into. Last night, I had a really fun night because Christina's brother came down from the Bay Area and brought their little two-year-old son, my nephew, and they asked me if I would be his babysitter so that they could go and see the Nutcracker in Carmel. And uh, so I said, yeah, absolutely. And I just had such a fun time. You know, I have three daughters, so I prepared myself as best I could for this little boy, I had a fort ready to go. We were going to do some crafts. We were going to read some books. And what I discovered is that all he wanted to do for two and a half hours was wrestle. We just wrestled (laughs) for two and a half hours. And I tried this one move on him that I used to do with my daughters because we used to love to wrestle as well, where I called it the cave of terror. And I, w- I get on top of them and I've got them kind of cradled underneath me and then I ask them, can you get out of the cave of terror? And uh, I didn't get psycho with it. With my girls, I would do like a countdown, like 10, nine, you know, I'd just make it intense. They'd be crying, you know, the whole thing. I'm a very bad parent. But it was hilarious because he'd tell me, yeah, he could get out and he'd start to wriggle free. And just when his body was about free, He would look up at me, and he would wriggle right back in. (laughs) What was he doing? He was embracing the battle. (laughs) And I think as Christians, we need to embrace the struggle that God has called us into. It's an exciting thing to war for our sanctification. There is hope in Christ Jesus, but we've got to engage in it continually for the rest of our lives. Okay, the second thing that I want to point out that God prepared them for in this episode was their eventual interaction with the nations. I mean, you have to think about the people of Israel. They're, they're just a multitude at this point. They don't think of themselves in national terms, never have. They've just, they were a big family when they moved to Egypt over 400 years earlier. They've been in captivity. They don't feel that they have a national identity in any way. But God is going to talk to them in the future about how they need to be a people who reach out to and are a light to the nations uh, around them. Um, And so here in this episode, they deal with two different national groups, the Amalekites and then this singular Midianite. Now, if you could just give me five minutes, and uh, if if this isn't interesting to you, you don't have to pay attention, but just give me five minutes to talk about the Amalekite people for a second. Because... Uh, at this point, some of us maybe started to feel a little bit uncomfortable in the book of Exodus, reading some of the things that we read. You know, God had already judged Egypt, but here he defeats the Amalekites. And at first, we were maybe like a little bit comforted by it because it's clear that it's a self-defense situation. But then at the end, Moses tells, uh, God tells Moses to write a memorial in a book that he would utterly blot out the memory of Amalek and war. With them from generation to generation, and uh, you know, some of you might not mind that at all, but others of you, you might uh, be a little disturbed at that. So I want to talk about the Amalekite people. Uh, the the Amalekite people are always presented in the Bible as aggressors against Israel. Always, there's never a change. Uh, they are forever known in the Bible. Uh, as it says in numbers 2420, as the first among the nations to attack Israel. They were the first ones. I mean, obviously Egypt from that side of things, but once they were set free, they were the first ones, knowing full well that something miraculous is happening to these people. They still were aggressors against Israel. We don't know a lot about the Amalekite people. It's interesting, God said I'll blot out their memory and you literally cannot find anything about the Amalekite people except in the Bible itself. The one place that their name is not blotted out is in God's book. Um, They appear to be a desert dwelling people uh, from what the Bible says who were threatened by Israel's presence. Uh, They didn't know that Israel brought their own food And brought their own water and the manna and the miraculous water that God could provide. So they're threatened by uh, the presence of this multitude. Uh, In other Bible passages, uh, the battle here is fleshed out a little bit more. Like at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, where we learn that the Amalekite tactic in this war was to pick off the weakest and most vulnerable of Israel's community. They were, they were going after those who were straggling behind, the old, older folks or children. They were, they were going after the families in Israel. Now, this first interaction with Amalek, it repeats itself throughout the Bible. Uh, they are never shown in any other passage to have humbled themselves in any way or repented in any way of their desire to destroy Israel. Uh, Forty years later, after Israel wandered in the wilderness, The Amalekites will be found again and they will try to discourage the people of Israel from going into the promised land. Once the monarchy was established, the first king in Israel, King Saul, he had to confront the wickedness that was still there in the Amalekite people. And if you've ever read the book of Esther and read about how Haman, wanted to and conspired to blot out Israel from the face of the earth, what you need to know there is that Haman is the last Amalekite man mentioned in the Bible. So what you have in the Amalekites are a group who craved the extermination of Israel before Israel had produced the Messiah Savior of the world. One scholar even claims that feeling sorry for the Amalekites is like feeling sorry for the Nazis. Now, what we need to remember is that God had told Abraham way back in Genesis 12, verse three, that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And before Abraham, God had told Adam and Eve that even though the serpent figure had deceived them in the garden, one day a descendant of Eve's would be harmed by that snake while simultaneously crushing that snake. Uh, we, we have a painting that comes up at Christmas time in our house, uh, and it's of a weeping Eve, and she has a serpent wrapped around her leg. She's saddened, and she's being comforted by a pregnant Mary who is stepping on that same serpent's head. Jesus The baby in Mary's womb is the snake crusher that the Old Testament anticipated. But at this point in the book of Exodus, Jesus, of course, has not yet come. The snake crusher has not yet arrived. If Amalek at any point in Old Testament history had their way and was able, allowed to exterminate Israel, the snake crusher that had been promised would not have come and the world would have been lost so, when God says that he's going to blot out Amalek and war against them from generation to generation, I take God to mean that when Amalek arises to fight, God will defend his program for saving all the people groups of the world rather than allow one people group of the world to continually attack that plan. Amalek had every opportunity, like Egypt and Babylon and Assyria at various points in biblical history to turn and repent. Look at what the prophet Jeremiah said on behalf of God. He said, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. It's like God's exception clause. When, when I pronounce a judgment, embedded in that judgment is the possibility of mercy, is the possibility of forgiveness if they were to turn. But Amalek would not budge, so God's hand was forced. And he defended his plan. Okay, so the Amalekites, they rejected God's plan for Israel. But the good news is, in the next episode, this one Midianite, he shows up on the scene and he loves what God had done for the people of Israel. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, uh, he reunites Moses with his family. Uh, and I think it's really cool to get a glimpse of Moses' family life. In this episode, we we know of Moses, we think of Moses, and the Israelites thought of Moses as a deliverer, as a leader, as a prophet. But Zipporah and Gershom and Eliezer, they knew of Moses as a husband and a dad. And so they get back together, and I think Moses was probably refreshed by their presence. We don't know when Moses sent them away, why Moses sent them away, where they were when Moses sent them away, but I suspect that as they're reunited, Moses was encouraged. You know, like lots of good dads, God spoke to Moses through his family. I mean, every time he called his sons by name, he was reminded of God's previous deliverance in his life uh, because he gave them names that symbolized or pointed to God's miraculous work to call him out of the wilderness and give him victory over Egypt. Now, it seems that Jethro had been following the news from afar of what God had done for Moses. So he knew how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. He couldn't wait to get together with Moses and hear it for himself. So Moses reported everything to Jethro. It says in verse 8 of chapter 18, this is a beautiful verse, he said that he told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced, Jethro blessed the Lord. He even repeated lines from the Red Sea song when when he said, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Then this priest of Midian, that's what it calls him, the priest of Midian, he sits down with the future high priest of Israel and all the elders of Israel, and he offers burnt offerings and sacrifices and they have a meal together. Now, we don't really know uh, with certainty what Jethro's status before God was. Was was he a believer? Had he been a believer since he'd known Moses earlier on in the story? Does he become a believer in Yahweh in this story? Or is he just a good guy who thinks good and moral things, but has not yet converted to God as the priest of Midian? I don't know that we can know with certainty, but for me at least, There's enough clues to persuade me that he had at some point, whether earlier or in this episode, converted to Yahweh as as a result of Moses' testimony. But these stories put together, what do they give us? They give us an Amalekite people who hate God's plans for Israel and a Midianite man who celebrates God's plans for Israel. And these contrasting figures were designed to prepare the people of Israel for their relationship with the nations. They were meant to be a light to the world, and some in the world would accept, and some in the world would reject. And watching Jethro, this newly converted Gentile, give nation-shaping counsel to Moses, would have helped Israel welcome anyone who wanted to worship Yahweh. As the prophet Isaiah said later in Isaiah 56, verse 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That's God's heart. And these stories would help Israel embrace that perspective. I think it's important to note what Moses did. All Moses did was tell Jethro what God had done for him. It reads like a gospel interaction. It's just this guy saying, this is what my God did for me, and now we're free. Look, it's as simple as that, you guys. I realize that we live in a time where we get real nervous, you know, talking to people about Jesus and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, what are you doing? You are reporting. You're reporting of what he has done for you. And Jethro heard that report, and he received it. We're like farmers who are sowing seeds in a field. Some seeds take, some seeds don't, but we must cast that seed. Okay, the last and final thing we should look at today is that God used these episodes to prepare his people for life under the Torah or life under the law of God or life under the Bible, life under the word. Uh, Jethro saw this whole thing going down. He sees Moses every day. Moses goes out all day long, you know, these long 12, 13, 14, 15-hour days where he's settling the disputes of the people of Israel. There were probably a lot of them. I mean, up to this point in the book of Exodus, the Hebrew people are depicted as being very good at complaining. So they probably had lots of interpersonal beefs among the different tribes there in Israel. And so Moses all day long is settling these disputes. Uh, When Jethro heard or saw what Moses was doing, uh, he told Moses that he and the people were going to burn out. He said, Moses, you're going to grow tired and worn out, but the people are also going to grow tired and worn out. If they have to stand in line all day just to hear what God thinks about something, uh, they're going to get fatigued. You know, they say that justice delayed is justice denied. There was a lot of the denial of justice with the methodology that Moses had proposed. So, so Jethro, like a great in-law, offered a suggestion. Uh, sorry, that was a joke. Sorry to all you in-laws out there. Uh, he, t- he tells Moses, he's like, look, you need to keep on teaching everyone, uh, but you need to designate leaders over smaller groups. Uh, y- y- they have to be able men, They need to fear God. They need to be trustworthy. They need to hate a bribe. Uh, And these men, what they'll do is they'll take the statutes and laws, Moses, that you teach them, and they'll distribute them among the people. They'll judge the people with those laws in mind. If issues come up that they can't handle, then they bring it to you. Otherwise, Moses, you intercede for the people to God, and you teach the people the law of the Lord. Now, Moses adopted this organizational structure that Jethro suggested. He didn't walk away saying, "Uh, you know, just this crazy Midianite priest, this Gentile doesn't know how we do things. He's like, no, that's wise. And he incorporated it into Israel. He established smaller groups of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens so that the law could be distributed to everyone. Uh, In a couple of chapters, like I've already mentioned, the people are going to receive the Ten Commandments, and the expanded law that stems from those 10 commandments. And this organizational structure would enable them to distribute those commandments and those laws among the entire populace. Now, it'd be real tempting. I'm, I have three minutes to go here. It'd be real tempting to just kind of stop at this point and say, okay, here's some applications. You know, Moses couldn't do it alone. We can't do it alone. We need people in our lives. It's a great application. Mo- Moses was gonna wear out if he tried. We will also wear out if we try to do that. We gotta take Sabbaths and vacations, stuff like that. Uh, Moses was called to create a scripture-saturated environment. We as a church, we should do the same. In fact, uh, that's a great application of this passage. Churches like ours have... Uh, take in passages like these and emphasize the public reading and teaching of Scripture and then have broken up into smaller groups throughout the community so that we can talk about the Word and be a Bible-centered community. And, and I think, in a sense, you can make a case that when Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 that God gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, you can make a case that that's found right here in Exodus chapter 18. But there's something more in this passage That's what I want to end with today. This is a book where we are learning about God. Who is God? The whole book, it's like like God has cast his reel into Egypt. He's caught his people and he is reeling them in towards himself. What do we learn about God from this development? I think what it shows us is that God was not content for the knowledge of the word to reside in Moses alone. He wanted the Bible, he wanted the law to spread everywhere. He wanted his priests to know it, he wanted his kings submitted to it, he wanted men to know it, he wanted women to know it, he wanted parents to pass it down to the next generation. But ultimately, if you look at the timeline of biblical history, the development of Revelation, What you discover is that God was not content with it just being there. God would only rest when the word got inside of his people. In the New Testament era, Jesus still breaks us up into groups and churches and calls us to center ourselves upon his word, but he's also busy on this side of the cross writing his book on our individual hearts. He predicted this in the Old Testament. Look at what Jeremiah said, for example. Jeremiah prophesying on God's behalf, speaking for God, said, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. What does this mean? Does it mean that the groups and the teachers and all of that are eradicated by the new covenant? No, it means that they are complemented by the new covenant. It means that the counsel that Jethro gave Moses pointed forward to a greater day when God would not only distribute his word through smaller groups and leaders and teachers and pastors, but would inscribe it on the internal drives and motivations of individuals in his church. It means that, Before Jesus came, people devoted to the word were like musicians reading sheet music, trying to play what they read on that sheet. But that after Jesus came and the spirit began to indwell his people, we become like musicians who have memorized the sheet music and are playing it because it has been written upon Hearts. And that is one of the most beautiful elements of the hope of the gospel that I personally know of. The inward transformational work of God's Spirit writing His Word upon our hearts. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit Calvary.com. You can also find books teachings through the bible and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com thanks again for tuning in see you next week